Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 242 being recorded on Wednesday, October 21st, 2020. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. And as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Well, when we're not talking about Shippageddon, one of our other favorite topics here on the Jason and Scott Show is... Uh, what we call branded re- manufacturers going direct or uh, direct to consumer brands or just simply direct to consumer. Um, and this is a, a big topic, and we're really excited to have a guest here that is going to be able to really help us dive in on this and shed a lot of light on the trend. So, we are excited to welcome to the Jason Scott Show Rob Gonzalez. He is the co founder and CMO, Chief Marketing Officer, which is one word short of Jason's title. I'll just point that out of Salsify. Uh, Salsify is an e-commerce enablement software as a service company that has raised over $250 million, uh, I'll do a dramatic pause there, and focuses on helping brands sell online. Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, we. Uh, um, I don't know if listeners know this, but we record late at night, and you're an early morning person, so we really appreciate you staying up into the wee hours to, to do this with us. Thank you. Yeah, you guys are the party animals of e-commerce with these hours. That's uh yeah that's what we're commonly referred to as the the party animals of e-commerce. You you talk about sad states of affair like what a lame industry this is if if Scott and I are the party animals. Uh, Rob, it's awesome to have you on the show. Uh, excited to dive into the latest stuff. But uh, before we do, we always like to get a little bit of a a, a feel for the guests. Can you tell us how you uh, got started and how you came to the e-commerce industry? Yeah, in 2006, I was working in an IBM research group, and right across the street was Indeca Technologies. Um, one of my best friends, Jeremy, is also my co-founder um, at, at Salsify, got a job at Indeca and loved it and convinced me to come over. And, and Indeca Technologies, for, for those who don't know, invented search navigation merchandising for e-commerce. So if you were building an enterprise e-commerce site in the 2000s, you weren't just buying a single platform like you are today. You're not just buying Salesforce Commerce Cloud and it sort of does everything. Um, what you would do is you would buy a, a mix of different pieces of technology and stitch them together to provide your whole commerce platform. So the search engine, the navigation system, all that stuff was typically bought separate from the core commerce platform. And Indeca was the leader in that space. Um, you think about like in that period, walmart.com, target.com, uh, HomeDepot.com, most of the big e-commerce players, uh, about 60% of the internet retailer top 100 use Indeca for their search navigation and merchandising. Amazon actually tried to acquire them at one point in the 2000s too, uh, to, to be what would ha- what would become the A9 algorithm. Um, so really, really great technology. Uh, it was acquired by Oracle for a little over a billion dollars in 2011. And uh, I like that number because, I mean, in 2011, e-commerce was basically nothing. So to be a billion dollar really e-commerce search company at that time really shows the the impact that Indeca had. So that, that's when I got into it. Very cool. The um Indeca is interesting. I keep I always bump up against folks that that have gone on to do other things from Indeca and you probably keep better track of this than I do. Um, and in e-commerce, we always talk about the PayPal mafia, um, that, that is out there. Uh, and I say mafia in the most glowing of terms, uh, meaning people that got their started at a company have gone on to better and better things in, in kind of a, in a, an unusually large percentage of folks. Um, so you guys at Salsify kind of come from there. I believe some of the folks at Toast, um, there's a company Jellyfish, uh, you know, I, I think I think there's like 10 or 20 e-commerce companies that got kind of born out of Indeca. Is that, is that kind of your take as well? Yeah, there's there's a whole set of them, and they're across lots of industries and and uh, and other places. So in healthcare, you've got a company called Kairos. Um, in restaurant services, Toast, of course, raised a monster round at the start of 2020 at something like a 4.5 billion dollar valuation. Sprout Social went IPO'd this year. They were founded by by Indeca alumni. Um, you know, you you mentioned Jellyfish is a relatively new company that's that's uh, doing really really well in, in engineering analytics. 
Um, so Steve Papa, the founder CEO of Indeca, has been doing a play called Parallel Wireless, um, Next Generation Wireless Technologies. Um, and so, yeah, there's just an absolute ton of companies that came out of that, that group of folks. And then other individuals, like the chief scientist of Indeca, Daniel Tunkelang, was the chief data scientist at LinkedIn after Indeca. Um, one of the Andreessen Horowitz partner, Julie Yu, is is an Indeca alumni. So they're they're just all over the place. It was a it was a heck of a company in terms of the talent that they were able to bring in. Was there something about the culture that kind of you know was it like a entrepreneurial kind of culture? Like what was there something special about it that you think has caused so many alumni to go on to bigger and better things? You know, Jeremy, Jason, and I talk about that. It's really hard to pin down. I mean, I think the central thing is Indeca was known at that time for having an absolutely kick-ass engineering team, like the best in Boston. And, and a lot of people believe that. And um, whether or not it's true, you know, it at least had in that reputation of being in the top few. So people that were really smart and ambitious in the Boston area always had it on their list. And Indeca's interview process was really geared more towards hiring for just raw intelligence and ambition versus a particular skill set in, in, in any of the particular, in any of the markets. I mean, they uh, just, I mean, they hired me as a product manager and I was a research software engineer at IBM. I didn't really even know how to spell product management before they hired me as one. Um, and, and that was pretty typical of a lot of the hires that they had. So it made for this like really intense, um, high energy, very smart, culture. Um, but it, that also felt pretty chaotic a lot of the time too, because you had a lot of smart people that were in there with their own ideas and their own ambitions and trying to build their own things. Um, but yeah, I, I, if anything, I would, I would pin it to that, but it's, it's hard to say exactly what at that time drew so many good people in, in one place. It, uh, on top of that, it, it was also very much the Rolls Royce, um, top of the the hill product in the space like for a long time commerce platforms didn't even bother building search into their platform because it was sort of a a given that you were you were going to use indeca or certainly if you were an enterprise class uh customer you were going to use indeca um and it they they held that position for a long time even after oracle acquired them uh one of the things that's interesting to me is it's kind of one of those stories what 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 in my mind, what really uh, finally uh, knocked them off the hill was they ran up against uh, good open source competitors. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. Um, Solar, Elasticsearch, they changed the game from below. They, but what, what made Solar and Elasticsearch even competitive was um, compute capacity got a lot cheaper. And like from, a, from the Indecas, Indeca had a couple dozen patents on, on their core engine. It was called the MDEX engine, the multi multi-dimensional index. And the core thing that Indeca allowed you to do was to navigate with, you know, sub hundred millisecond response times, huge sets of data with high dimensionality. And what that means is like, if you go to walmart.com or you go to amazon.com where they're selling these days, tens of millions or hundreds of millions of products. And you look at that left hand navigation once you, once you do a search. So let's say you go in there and you search for t-shirts and then the left hand navigation, there's selections such as brand, color, size, price, ratings, prime enabled, all that type of stuff. So clicking on any of those options reduces the space of things that match the original search of t-shirt that you were going after. And it does so very, very quickly. The um, ability for a computer system to have a large amount of data and a large amount of those navigable options you know, think about like a Walmart or Home Depot with literally thousands of product categories, each with their own navigation structure. So, you know, thousands of options to click from to, to navigate through the set. Um, computers, like there weren't systems that could do that back in 2001, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. Uh, BI Cube, if you're using business objects or Cognos or something like that, these systems would allow you to have a few dozen dimensions at most, right? And then they'd, they'd sort of scale out. So Indeca had this secret sauce of, this this uh, index that could return search results in sub hundred millisecond time for large data sets, um, and and nobody else had that. So so yeah, this the the open source guys came along and they they've got amazing products, um, but but those products are not competitive except for the fact that computing power has actually gotten significantly better and cheaper also in the intervening ten years. 
Very cool. So that's a good segue. I'm the uh, I'm the entrepreneur in this uh, partnership of Jason and Scott here, and I always like to hear kind of the founding story. You, you guys were at Indeca, you got got bought by Oracle, um, and then kind of walk us through to the the founding idea of Salsify. And hopefully, there's a napkin diagram in there somewhere. <laughs> well, um, e- I mean, first of all, e-commerce is awesome. It's the coolest. It's the coolest space to work in because it's so dynamic, and and it's it's not just dynamic as a space. The practitioners of e-commerce, whether you're in a manufacturer, whether you're in a distributor, whether you're in a retailer, the people that are that are in the weeds every day are just trying new things out all the time. It's kind of cowboy, it's wild west. Um, it's dynamic. It's just the the greatest space to be in. So after Indeca, we really wanted to do another e-commerce play. And the, the big the big challenge, like if, if, going back to Indeca, you look at the search and navigation. Um, think about the search experience on Amazon, right? Or the search experience on Wayfair or the search experience on Home Depot. These are companies that have very large product assortments. And a consumer oftentimes when they go to the site, isn't quite sure what they're looking for. So, you know, you use a generic search term, you search for, you know, blue t-shirt or, or a polo shirt, or you search for running shoes, or, you know, you search for like some of these generic, generic phrases, and then you start looking around for what's available, right? And, when you start looking around for what's available, oftentimes, first of all, the content is terrible on a lot of these product detail pages, even today. Um, but second of all, when you click on the navigation options, a lot of products don't show up. I remember we did, we did um, one of our early customers was a company called Drive Medical, which is, uh, they're the largest manufacturer of durable medical equipment. Think like walkers, rollators, neck braces, things like that. If, if you go to walmart.com and they've got dozens and dozens of walkers and rollators on walmart.com, Walmart had a filter called senior, right? So just show me products for seniors. And if you clicked at that time, this is eight years ago, on the senior filter, you'd see one rollator. Like the rollators are the, you know, the things that old people use to, to assist them in walking. And like literally every rollator should be marked as senior, right? Like there's not, there's not like a junior rollator. There's not a rollator for somebody who's middle-aged like me. It's just, they're, they're all senior products. And, and so that's a failure of the data tagging. Now, we found at Indeca that the navigation, if you had really good search, really good navigation, really good content, we could quantify the conversion rate improvement and the lift. Um, you could also quantify things like the house, how big the cart was going to be by improving those things. And, and we're talking, you know, dozens of points of conversion improvement. I mean, huge, huge impact. And the biggest challenge that a Home Depot or, or a Walmart or a Target or any of these companies had in delivering these experiences that converted at a high rate was acquiring content that could actually support search and navigation and merchandising strategies. So our view at Salsify in the founding thesis was a brand manufacturer, you know, the Coca-Colas, Legos, Levi's, Bosch's, 3Ms of the world should really, really care about their products being optimized for search and navigation where retailers go, where, where consumers go to, to find their products. So they've, if you go to walmart.com, if you go to target.com, you go to amazon.com, you go to granger.com, you want to be able to, um, your product to show up first, regardless of what the search is. And you want your product to show up uh, for the correct navigation filters when people are searching by navigation. And our experience was Retailers got bad, bad content and brands really did a poor job servicing this type of content. And we felt that there was a, a, an immediate opening in the market there for somebody to help a brand manufacturer optimize for search and conversion across all of the digital um, retail touch points that consumers might be looking for their products. So that, that was the origin story. Um, I'll, I'll layer onto that, that our view of the system, as we were thinking about it before founding the company, was that, well, if, if you start really optimizing on the search and navigation and you really start optimizing for the experience management to help to help drive conversions on these retailer sites, you know, really, this is the first step towards building a multi-channel commerce platform, you know, empowering not just the experience on, on all of these different uh, multiple channels, but also the transactions on some timeline. So our view was, let, let's start with a multi-channel experience management system that helps people optimize search and navigation. Um, and then we'll layer on the commerce capabilities because ultimately everything is going to have a buy button. Uh, so that was, that was the, the founding thesis and idea. And we you know, got after it starting in September 2012. 
So, so is it fair to say that in DECA, you kind of learned that, you know, the, the front end can, experience can only be as good as the, the data in, right? So it's a classic garbage in, garbage out thing. So, so to really solve the discovery and customer experience, you have to kind of go back a step to the brand because if they're sending the retailer a bunch of junk data, there's only so much you can do to improve that, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and what makes it insidiously difficult is... If, if you look at HomeDepot.com, which which Indeco was powering, um, I think still is actually powering, but uh, Home Depot has a very broad product assortment. And things like the depth of the bathtub, the finish of the faucet, the um, the lumens of the light bulb, you know, all of those filters matter. They're material buying information that you want to be able to search and filter and make decisions based on, right? So those if those filters on homedepot.com are controlled by site merchants and the site merchants are constantly AB testing to optimize the site experience. So, you, you know, for, for faucets, for example, let's say that you've got a finish that's chrome and a finish that's like burnished metal and the site merchant gets this idea. You know what? People don't know what these things are. I'm going to call them silver. Let me run a site test to see whether silver converts at a higher rate than chrome, right? So they'll run the test and the test will determine, wow, actually calling things silver is a really, really good idea. We should start collecting silver as an option for the finish of the faucet. So then what happens is the, the set of options that you can pick from a dropdown to set up a faucet on homedepot.com now includes a new option, which is silver. And Home Depot was making changes to that site, site search uh, structure on, on, on the regular, like every single day, literally. Um, as they're optimizing their site. Amazon, same thing. Walmart, same thing. These guys, they're constantly looking at the numbers and constantly trying to squeeze out a little bit more conversion rate. Um, so the site data strategy isn't constant. It's in constant flux. So if you're a manufacturer and you sell faucets and you're setting an item up on Home Depot today and you fill out like it's Chrome, and then tomorrow you could go fill out you know, the next version of that item, and Chrome's no longer an option. It's been replaced by silver. Like that type of little change multiplied by however many hundreds of retailers you work with is the is a problem with with for the manufacturers. So manufacturers weren't 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 just not provided the content. They were also bombarded with this cacophony of changes that were really quite difficult to keep up with. Yeah. And I, it's funny, I'm trying to get in my my time machine and go back to 2012 back back then uh say you were a a cpg company your mondelez selling oreos right uh the the person that was responsible at mondelez for walmart.com was either the intern or it was like a you know one one percent side job for the account team that sold to to the walmart stores in in bentonville and so uh when when they sold those Oreos in the store, Walmart needed to know like eight attributes about the pack of Oreos. But when they started trying to merchandise Oreos online, the online team's like, oh, we want 30, 60, 80 attributes about the product. And that poor intern had no juice or way to get any of that digital shelf content. So I, I, like there, there was a lot of uh, like sales team recreating their own product content in Microsoft Excel and like manually uploading it to websites back then. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it just, I 100% agree with that. And it sort of, it reflects exactly the priority of e-commerce and digital strategy in general in CPG in 2012. I mean, it just, it was not, it was on nobody's radar, right? It was, it was, it was a, maybe a fast growing, tiny little segment that almost nobody cared about in just about every segment. So the, you know, the Mondelez example, um, not only was it some, you know, intern's job to fill out the content, but Mondelez also didn't really have an e-commerce um, st strategy from a product portfolio perspective. So back in 2012, in order to, to even make, make positive margin on a sale on Amazon, Mondelez, I don't know if you remember this, they'd be selling like the, the, the three pack of the large packs for like 25 bucks. So you couldn't just buy a small amount of Oreos. You had to buy like a tremendous amount of Oreos on Amazon if you if you were buying them. And so so they were yeah they were it was back then it was really everything was manual. Oh yeah. Uh, for the record, I never noticed that because I just wanted to buy that many Oreos. So it was yeah. What's never wrong? Happened. What's wrong with buying a three pack of Oreos? Come yeah. On, bro. I, I gotta uh, tell you the you know the birthday cake Oreos. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're the greatest things imaginable. <laughs> yeah, I do. Uh, my five-year-old is a big fan, although we're on Halloween Oreos right now. Oh, yeah. Um, so then we get in that time machine. We fast forward back to 2020. Um, you guys have done a couple of rounds of fundraising uh, along the way, but uh, uh, very recently you announced a, a big rise of like $155 million, which is super impressive. Congratulations slash now I'm nervous for you. Um, and, uh, it seems like a bunch of other vendors in the, in the commerce space have also done really well with investors lately. I think I want to say miracle had to raise the same week you did fabric had to raise this week. Obviously there've been some, some successful IPOs from the platform guys. Uh, do you like, is COVID sort of heating up the space? Like what do you, what do you think is driving investor interest in the space right now? Yeah, I think COVID is heating up interest in certain parts of the space. Um, so, you, I mean, you look at the commerce platforms, like Shopify obviously is worth a gajillion dollars right now uh, in market cap. Big commerce IPO'd and had just a stellar stellar IPO. Same, same sort of thing. Um, the multiples in that space are just really, really high right now in the public markets. For, for, um, for us, the in general, COVID is accelerates digital trends and you know you could say that's a positive thing for us but um the range of companies that we sell to is you know there's a whole markets that we generally sell to that have been absolutely crushed so apparel for example apparel still hasn't gotten off the floor this year right you know footwear has not gotten off the floor this year um and so for you know for us it's been you know we've done we've done well during this period because it's digital uh but but in broad strokes i don't think it's particularly different from from what we were, you know, going to do anyway, um, with, with general rise with a company like a miracle, um, miracle for those who don't know, they provide marketplace as a service effectively. So, you know, how you know, Amazon, you could, you could buy one products from Amazon that are, that are sold by Amazon and you could buy products on Amazon that are sold by third-party sellers. Um, miracle is basically enabling any retailer to sell third-party products on, on their dot coms. And, that strategy is is a strategy that's very attractive to retailers that are trying to keep up with Amazon. Um, they look at Amazon's three P margins, and they they just it's like, it looks like almost free money, right? And they say, well, geez, you know, if we could get if we can get some of that, that that's good, that that's helpful to us. Um, and then also it, it enables us to have larger assortments to compete with Amazon on assortment. And you know, these days when all of a sudden, just about every ever purchase went online. It's for retailers to have a strategy to increase assortment in a dramatic way and increase margin on a bunch of the sales. That that's a hugely attractive thing. So you see sectors like grocery, for example. I think uh, you know Albertsons has a uh, uh, has purchased Miracle recently, right? Kroger I think has purchased Miracle Miracle recently. So these big grocers who who generally had I, I would say like a um, an online strategy that that lagged you know Amazon, Walmart, Target, for example. Um, you know, they're standing up these marketplaces now with, with haste. So I think COVID for Miracle has been a huge accelerator in this in the space that they're in. So it, it, it sort of depends, I guess, on the space, on where, where, where you fit in the e-commerce supply chain as to whether it's been like hugely positive, um, you know, a little bit positive, uh, neutral. Right. And, and I think you're, you're just seeing the fundraising reflecting that. Very cool. Uh, we know the guys at Miracle. Congrats to them and to you uh, on the big raises. The um, so 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 that's really good. Kind of, I think that helps listeners kind of understand. So you've you've spent the last eight years like really entrenched in working with brands of all different categories, helping them get their products out to market. And you know, the thing we talk a lot about is this direct to consumer kind of pivot that most brands are making. Um, you know, would would love to hear what's it been like watching that over the last eight years, and and where do you think we are on that that spectrum right now? Oh man, yeah, we're in like the early innings on that spectrum. So we, I remember we went to, if you remember, um, a couple companies that have been acquired since then, uh, Clavis, which is now part of Essential, One Click Retail, which is part of Essential, uh, Content Twenty Six. There, there was a, a bunch of us that were playing in the Amazon. Um, content and conversion optimization space in you know 2015, 16, 17, which was, you know, it's it's funny to look back and say that that those were early days on Amazon. But for a lot of manufacturers in particular that were like learning about e-commerce at that point, that, those were early days on Amazon. 
And uh, we had a, uh, the one-click retail guys hosted a, a hackathon. And I want to say to end of 2016 out in Seattle, it was an Amazon hackathon. We had VPs of e-commerce from like a hundred companies. And the set of us were just hosting um, sessions on, on particular win on Amazon topics. And back then everyone was talking about how the future of selling on Amazon would be hybrid selling. So if you're a manufacturer, what that means is that you're selling some product direct to Amazon that Amazon is then, then owns and sells to consumer. And you're selling some product uh, as a third-party seller on Amazon. And what you sold as a first-party on Amazon versus what you sold as a third-party of Amazon, you know, there's a whole deep discussion on, on that, that strategy, which has changed over time. Whether you've got a third, 3P backstop for if Amazon goes out of stock on, on one piece sales and whether you tell Amazon about it is a whole other topic. And, and so people were, were discussing that the future, the best-in-class operations for um, Amazon required that a brand manufacturer have the ability to pick, pack, and ship in each to a consumer for the purposes of this hybrid selling model. And so I, I thought, honestly, at that time, given the focus on the topic, that we're now four years in, just about everyone would be doing it or, or would have figured it out, right? We would have invested in sub the supply chain in particular, the demand forecasting models, the the, the um, office of the CFO has to deal with updating the way that they think about P&L for the space. And like you would think that they would have done those changes to make it possible to sell direct to consumer. And, you know, we're four years later, and I think the majority of brand manufacturers don't, don't have the capability to sell direct to consumer. Um, a lot of them are struggling to set it up right now in haste in COVID, but you know they they didn't have it coming into this year, and so uh, I think that space is really in its in its early innings. Um, with the way the way that I think how it's going to evolve, and this might be a, I don't know if I'm the only one who thinks this. This might be a controversial point. The way I think this is going to be evolved is that the brand dot coms are going to be the least important of the direct routes to market. So if you're um, if you're a manufacturer and you've got a brand.com and it's got a shopping cart on it and it's powered by Shopify or Big Commerce or Salesforce Commerce Cloud or Adobe Commerce or whatever, and you know people go to brand.com and they they transact and then you ship them the product. I think that if you if you if you consider that one mode of direct to consumer, another mode of direct to consumer is selling as a three P seller on a marketplace, right? You're just basically using someone else's website except in, instead of your website to power the shopping cart. Another mode of direct consumer is the new buy buttons that exist, exist places like Instagram or Google Shopping Actions. And you take the whole mix of those, those things like buy buttons everywhere as direct consumer where you're doing the merchandising and you're doing the fulfilling. I think that we're in the very early days of companies wrapping their heads around that. I think we're in the very early days of companies even investing in the capabilities to manage that. And I think we're, we're also um, in, in a space where the at the end of the day, the brand.com might be the least important of all those options, um, which, which further complicates how they're thinking about direct-to-consumer as a category. So that, that's my general view on it. It's, I mean, it's, I, would, I would have expected more change in the last four years. Um, but you know, with COVID, I think we, we, we should expect faster acceleration of this stuff in the next two. Interesting. Uh, I, I, do, uh, I love this stuff. I want to unpack just a little bit of that. Um, so the your perspective about brand.com is interesting. I feel like I agree depending on the category, right? So um, in consumer packaged goods or food or items where the unit economics aren't super favorable, the selling it from brand.com, uh, 100% agree, right? Like like they should, for many reasons, still have a brand.com, but it's not a very important touch point. So it's probably never going to be a big touch point for doritos or whatever right even though i know they just want com, yeah 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 um however i actually think for nike.com or apple.com the uh there, there is a concerted effort to make that uh like the primary destination and they and certain brands can make that work right when they they have the right product and the right unit economics yeah it's actually it's interesting those, those examples you pick up there's a whole other thread here which is like in a in a world uh, in the world of e-commerce where anybody can compete with you, you know, on the, on the physical shelf, you're dealing with, you know, just a handful of other products in your category because there's limited shelf space in the store. 
on the digital shelf, you could be dealing, you know, competing with dozens of different products in your category. So the, the competition is significantly more fierce. And generally speaking, there's less market share uh, for the leaders um, on, online than, than there has been in store historically. So people that are used to a certain amount of market share generally lose it as the dollars move online. And the, I think the solution to this in broad strokes is for a brand to be like a must-have brand, right? For a brand to be truly differentiated. And Nike and Apple are two brands, to your point, that are truly differentiated. And they've built, a, they've built real loyal followings. And, and so people will go to Nike.com. They will go to Apple.com. And they will transact direct. And I, I see that as a result of just, just outstanding brand execution over a long period of time. Uh, there's, there's other examples that are, that are in that same vein, like lego.com. I know, you know, you've, you've got a little kid, I've got little kids, like we got a lot of Legos. We go to lego.com, uh, as as the primary place to transact for Legos. Um, but Lego again is one of those absolutely iconic brands. Uh, Keurig, uh, just as another one, Keurig does a lot of volume on the Keurig.com. Um, they've got, you know, subscriptions on replenishment. They, they, a lot of offices will purchase from Keurig.com in bulk. Things like that, right? And so, I, yeah, you're right that I think that I don't know that it's a category thing, though. I think it's a brand thing that where the ones that are really iconic brands are the ones that are going to have stronger contribution from their brand.com. Yep. Yeah. No, uh, that's fair. Uh, I, I think you do have to be that iconic brand. I just meant like, even if you're that iconic brand, if you're in a, a category that doesn't have super appealing unit economics, like that, that alone could erode. Like you, like you can be the best fabric care product. People probably don't want to buy Tide from Procter and Gamble. Like they probably want to get it with all their other groceries. Yeah, um, it's going to be interesting to see how that evolves. I, I remember actually thinking this exact question. I went to uh, P and P and G and spent a bunch of time on their direct to consumer because they can you can buy anything from P and G yeah. uh, direct to consumer. And so I, I ended up subscribing to the Mach three razor blades for from Procter and Gamble's Gillette um as you know and they've got like a subscription service for it and it's it's great and then I went to Tide and looked around and uh, Tide the interesting thing about the the Tide direct to consumer site is there are way more Tide options available on the direct to consumer site than you're going to get in any store that's around you and some of the options are really interesting compelling value oriented options for consumers, when I see value-oriented, I mean like um, uh, consumers that have a moral perspective on ingredients and things like that. Um, you know that that you generally won't find in in whatever a Target or a Kroger. So I, there, you know, I don't know. It's 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 interesting to say how much of that's going to matter. Tide has also put a tremendous amount of investment in e-commerce packaging. So if you buy Tide on Amazon, you don't get like the heavy plastic container. You get these. Um, I don't know what, what, what you call them, like these little plastic. Yeah, the frustration free, and then you get the um, oh gosh, yeah, the name's skipping me, but it's the like box, a plastic right? Bag basically, yeah. it's like a, it's like a plastic bag with like a little thing that it's meant to. It's like almost a refill more than the than the than the jug that you normally buy. Yep. And so they they've they've done that to make it more profitable to ship it basically. And so they've it's just interesting to I think over time there's no category that can't find a way to be profitable. Um, from a margin and shipping perspective. I mean, look, Wayfair, Wayfair had a profitable quarter. Wayfair, people, the company that a lot of people never thought would ever make money ever. There's no way they're ever going to make money. And they had they were profitable. And they, they sell furniture. And so, I, I don't know. I think it's all possible to make to, to do it direct to consumer. It's just a matter of uh, changing, maybe changing a bunch about how you do it. Yeah, fair enough. And uh, for sure, don't misconstrue anything I'm saying as you shouldn't be trying to do that. There's a bunch of benefits in addition to the the gross margin dollars. So, um, uh, but I did, uh, a couple other things came up that that are, I, I'll call them semi-controversial. So I do a ton of these direct-to-consumer engagements with brands. Um, and uh, I, I frequently talk about like the 12 flavors of direct-to-consumer, right? Because everyone, everyone immediately goes to brand.com. And my hypothesis is for a bunch of brands, per your point, that's, that's the least important, right? So there are all these other things. Uh, 100% agree with you, like Instagram checkout or or uh, click to buys on Google or these sorts of things. Um, and included in my list is 3P selling, right? Which you you clearly defined as a flavor of direct-to-consumer. But in my mind, when I'm telling that to a brand client, I actually feel like I'm lying. Because <laughs> I think there's a way in which 
three-piece selling or for sure three-piece selling on Amazon is exactly the opposite of D2C because you never meet the consumer. Like you never have any act, like you're totally disintermediated from the consumer. Yeah, I mean, not not fully though, because you can, I don't know how many 3P products um, that you purchase on Amazon, but if you if you get it from a small seller, what'll typically happen is there'll be a card in the box. So the small seller will will ship you the box and the box arrives and you open the box and there's a note to you, right? And the note will often have a discount code for, for, for a further purchase. And it'll say, yeah. look, if you have any trouble, please just, you know, don't, don't do the one-star review. Call me. I'll fix your problem. And yeah. it, it does all that type of stuff. So, yeah. so I think there, there is that opportunity. I'll tell, I'll tell you a great story there. Um, this is going back maybe five, six years ago. Uh, Bob Land is the, the uh, head of digital and customer experience at Durrell Juvenile Group in, in um, North America. And TV ads were getting pretty expensive for them. And so what he decided to do was to take all of his TV ad budget and put it into post-purchase experience. And the thesis was that, um, in particular for the, for the car seats that, that Durrell was manufacturing, they make something on the order of 8 million car seats a year. Um, and the idea was that if they, they did that, they could get repeat buy and they'd get word of mouth and they'd get good reviews and all this sort of stuff. So what, ended up, what he did was he invested in a call center based in America um, where when you get your car seat, you know, do you remember when you installed your first car seat? It's like absolutely impossible to know how to do it. And you're terrified that you're going to install it wrong and your kid's going to get hurt. And it's just, you know, the instructions are, you know, totally obscure. Like installing a car seat is a miserable experience. And so what Darrell did was, you know, you got a, you got a car seat and it would have a little unexpected gift as part of the packaging that you would unwrap it that you weren't expecting. And it would have a note that says, look, if you have any trouble at all, call this number and we'll get you on a video and we will walk you through any, any question that you've got. And so they invested in a call center, they invested in the video and they did that. So, and, and that resulted in, in like tremendous consumer satisfaction, great reviews, and it was a good investment. And so I think if you look at the three P selling, you you and you you are having ways there of investing in the direct consumer relationship um, that are n- not intermediated by Amazon in the same way that Amazon shipping that same product is right. You can get creative with these approaches and start building relationship, building rapport, building building consumer loyalty. Um, so yeah, I I agree. I mean, your point is well taken that you can't do as much with Amazon as a 3P as you can selling on your own brand.com. But I still think that they're of a theme. Yeah, fair enough. And uh, um, I will say part of the reason you you mainly get that experience with small brands versus large brands is because you're really skirting with the terms and conditions on Amazon <laughs> Amazon to be a 3P seller. And if you're a small seller, that, that risk calculation is worth it. If you're a big seller, you can't risk getting kicked off the platform. So you you have to be a little more careful. Yeah. Some of those things like don't give me a one star review are definitely uh, in the dark gray, dark gray zone. <laughs> yeah. Well, the discount code in the box is really dark. Gray. Yeah. The dark gray zone. <laughs> yeah. Or the even better, the, uh, you know, gift card. If you leave a, a five star review, that's a, that's classic. The, um, so, so Rob, you know, I, I don't know. Saucify is different customer categories, but you've talked a fair amount about like CPG, um, you mentioned fashion. Um, do you see each of these, there's kind of different category adoption going on because like, you know, obviously electronics were pretty early on toys have had to get some religion around direct to consumer because once TRU went out of business, they were kind of left without, without a lot of options. Um, do, is there a spectrum across categories of behaviors you see? Any, any interesting things there that you can share with listeners? Yeah, it's been um, the categories go undergo their own evolution uh, with regards to essentially how much sales are happening online. So when we, when we got started, um, I remember we, we spent the first, like this is 2013. And I, every two weeks we would call into a different category to try to get a sense of whether they were interested in the product that we were solving. And the most miserable two weeks was we called into dental equipment manufacturers for like a whole two weeks to see if they were interested in, in solving these, these, uh, digital experience problems and that went nowhere. But, um, the, you know, the early traction f- 
for online is if you look at beauty and personal care, the the kind of the percentage of sales that were online were pretty high early. So a lot of the early companies that we worked with, like the Johnson and Johnsons and Record Bank users and whatnot, um, had already seen some of the some of the growth online, and were already making some investment in the online experiences. Um, but you know, other companies, you look back in 2013, 14, 15. The other categories that absolutely were nowhere online are alcohol, for example. Again, there's rules and regs about purchasing alcohol online. Drizzly wasn't a thing yet and so on and so forth. And so alcohol was nowhere and nobody was investing in it. And you fast forward to you know the last two years, and especially with COVID, COVID has really made alcohol invest in e-commerce in a way that absolutely they, they is step function different compared to what it was before. But even so, the last two years, because of the rise of Drizzly and others, um, alcohol has come into the fray. And so now there are people with the title of VP of e-commerce at major alcohol manufacturers that have clout and that have uh, that have budget and that have investment. And so, yeah, category by category, when a category picks up online, uh, I think just sort of follows a market being available and sales going through. I mean, other ones that I'm kind of looking at in the future that where there's really no online activity right now are like automotive, automotive aftermarket, um, uh, pharmaceutical, industrial supply distribution, like electrical supply distribution, plumbing supply. Uh, there's a there's a there's a bunch of those categories that I think are, you know, on some kind of early part of the adopter curve right now that could accelerate pretty quickly. Um, with companies like, you know, Amazon business coming in and really putting pressure on distributors. So, so yeah, I think category by category, it's been pretty interesting at this point. Most consumer categories have, have got some, some amount of, of uh, ability to really execute and uh, B2B, I think is going to be the next, next big wave over the next decade. Yeah. Uh, it's exciting. There's so much opportunity. I feel like there's a bunch of categories that have barely been touched. So they, there's a, a ton of white space there. Um, you you highlighted, highlighted alcohol, which is super interesting, and I might even argue a lot of alcohol is a subset of grocery, and it feels like um, grocery is another category that that hugely got accelerated because of COVID. Like I'm not I'm not sure that many grocers could spell digital a year ago, um, and now it's it's their number one priority. Are, 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 uh, it seems like you guys are really well well situated for that. Are you seeing that as well? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The, the grocers were basically, you know, a year ago, it was sufficient for them to maybe list products on a dot com. And, um, and they, they would use their planogram images effectively as, as their images. And they, they, there was a really much of a site experience to speak of. And it, over the last year, Ahold, Albertsons, um, a bunch of a bunch of these folks have made really significant online experience investments. I mean, Albertsons, you saw the, the 270% growth or something like that um, they put out on, on digital. The numbers are just com- super compelling there. Others, yeah, like they growth, actually just had another earnings call this week and uh, did, had another great quarter. Another great quarter. Yeah, they're just, they're, they're just absolutely crushing it. Kroger, I think, was always a little bit ahead of, of the game from, from a digital perspective. And um, what's, oh, what's tough for a lot of these retailers is simply the cost to invest in making, you know, click and collect, buy online, pick up in store, um, the, you know, digital delivery to, to actually get these things to work and be profitable is just an absolutely massive capital expenditure. And Kroger's been spending a lot of money on it over a bunch of years. And what, you know, COVID has basically allowed them to do is to just sort of go next level on it, right? Actually, actually really invest and in, in you're getting closer to Amazon-like aggression in the way that they're able to go after it. So yeah, grocery really came online. You know, it's, it's funny that you mentioned is alcohol as part of grocery. It's the the longer that I've been in this game, the more the more I think about uh, subsections of the grocery stores almost being totally different universes. So like alcohol is its own universe, fresh foods its own universe, center aisles its own universe, and so on and so forth. Um, in a way that I, I don't think I appreciated at all ten years ago. Uh, and and each of those has had its own motion with regard to uh, digital maturity and digital execution and all that type of stuff. Oh, for sure. And frozen again would be a different one. Oh, uh, frozen. The, yeah. Yeah. The only reason I'm, I'm at the moment kind of bundling alcohol in a COVID, like in the short term, artificially, uh, like the thing you have to remember is 70% of alcohol spending pre COVID was on prem, like bars and restaurants. And so 
Now, you know, 90% of it is off-prem. So it's sold through some retailer. And at the same time, because of COVID, everyone's consolidating trips. So where you might have gone BevMo for your booze and Whole Foods for your fresh and Kroger for your shelf-stable stuff, now Kroger's winning that whole trip because you can get booze uh, fresh and shelf-stable there. So at the like, I don't think this will last forever, but at the moment, um, alcohol sales at that grocery store as part of that consolidated trip are way up. Oh, yeah, it's in- I hadn't thought about it that way, but yeah, that's, that doesn't surprise me. This, the stat that surprised me the, the most on alcohol, and this, is, this has changed since then, but back in, uh, I think sometime in mid-July, I was talking to one of the heads of e-commerce of a, of a major alcohol manufacturer, and they were saying that um, with every restaurant in America being closed, with every bar being closed, with every casino being closed, with every cruise ship being closed, with every beach being closed, and so on and so forth. You would think that alcohol consumption and, you know, you think that the manufacturers, therefore, their bottom line would be hit. You think that alcohol consumption would be down and people would they'd be selling less booze because all the places that sell booze are closed. And what, what, uh, what I was told was that in, in Q2, Actually, sales for the manufacturers were basically flat. So the in-store Kroger bulk booze purchase and the at-home boozing was more than sufficient (laughs) to make up for every bar, restaurant, casino, cruise ship, beach, and so on being closed for the whole period. Yeah, no, it it is crazy Um, and benefited per your original point. It was super hard to sell booze. There are all these regulations, and God forbid you try to sell booze online, it's even worse. And uh, as a result of COVID, a lot of distribution laws got temporarily loosened. And so, like, an a interesting sub-theme in all this is going to be if if uh, legislators are going to try to re- reimpose those restrictions or if we're now in a digital delivery world for, uh, for booze. Um, do you have a the, take there? What do you what do you think that those laws are going to be pulled back? Uh, I think, yeah, I think they're going to partially go back, but I don't think they're going to go back to where they were. I, I I think just like prohibition, you know, once once people get used to this stuff, it's it's pretty hard to take it away. Um, and so I don't know, you know, uh, we'll we'll have to to see. Um, I, I did want to ask you one more general question on, on grocery, because obviously you guys, you know, really focus on the digital shelf. I learned a lot about the digital shelf from you guys. Um, despite the fact that grocery is booming and we're selling stuff digitally, I still feel like it's the first inning, right? If I go to the most successful digital grocers in the U.S., it still feels like a T-shirt product detail page with some some produce information filled into it, right? Um and uh, I, I like to do this joke. I, I have a bunch of big digital grocer clients, and I always show them an audit of their product detail page. And I, I have this funny image, which is a true image for one of the very large grocers uh, of their kale product detail page. And it's like a forward description, like organic Italian kale. And then there's a 256-word uh, disclaimer saying that the information might be wrong. <laughs> that was fabulous. Um, and, and so I do think, like, as consumers really adopt digital, like I imagine the digital shelf in the future, like you think about all the things you'd want to know about your, your fresh produce before you buy it. And you go to China and you look at all the content that, that, uh, Hema or, uh, seven fresh give you. Um, and I, it just feels like, man, we're so, we're still so early in all this grocery stuff. Do you see any hope that we're going to, uh, improve now that everyone's paying attention to it? Yeah, I mean, like, if if we want to just pull back, um, some of the biggest advertisers in the world are companies that sell um, products, you know, C- CPG products into the grocery stores, right? And um, grocery is the biggest retail sector in, in the United States, and and um, I think that if if you look at things like television viewership and where um, where where the uh, percentage of households that actually have a cable subscription just keeps plummeting. There's more and more people going to Netflix. It means that basically people aren't seeing television commercials. Um, I think the a lot of the brand dollars that are traditionally spent 
through a television, um, through newspapers, through other means like that, are going to need to be redeployed elsewhere to make a brand case. And if you start from where the consumer is and work your way backwards, um, consumers' attention is digital these days, right? And all of their shopping patterns, I mean, right now, all of their shopping patterns are, are, are online for the most part, but you know, increasingly in the future, more and more will be. And so if you're a brand and you're looking to make the case for your brand and make the, and, and really not just sell a product, but, you know, build an emotional connection with the consumer, you know, the, the heart of branding here, um, those product detail pages are the heart of your operation. Like more people will see the product detail page for your product on Amazon than will see your TV commercial, right? More people will see the product detail page on Kroger than will see your TV commercial. And so I, as more purchase behavior and as more traffic and consume, fundamentally consumer attention goes to those pages, people will have to fix that problem of the Italian kale that you talked about. Like who's ever selling that kale should talk about, just like you go to Whole Foods, right? They don't just sell the kale. There's like a tag that tells about the local farm that grew this kale and like all this stuff. That's what you, that's what you need to do. It's, people don't just buy a product. They buy a story. They buy values. And so these product detail pages are going to evolve from being, you know, just a picture of the thing and, and a title to being full brand experiences. And, and that's what, that's what I think resonates with people. Um, and I, th- I think this is a broad statement about, I mean, this is, this is a fundamental thing that I believe about m- most of commerce. Like you look at Nike, one of the greatest brands in the world, we were already talking about them. You go to footlocker.com or, or a lot of other sites that, that still sell Nikes and the Nike photos are like the top of the shoe, the bottom of the shoe side of the shoe, you know, the shoelaces. There's no, there's no lifestyle shots. There's no, let's do it. There's no embedded video about Nike. There's no nothing. Right. And and like, that's where Nike should just be reinforcing the case of the amazing brand that it is. And, and so I, yeah, in grocery, we're really, I mean, we're really early days there, but, um, but yeah, I think it's inevitable that people are going to focus on improving those experiences as the dollars and the consumer attention move there. Very cool. If we, if we project out a little bit, one of the things that I'm always kind of fascinated to hear people's opinion on is if every brand is kind of going direct. Um, and you know, I know you're not really a, a big believer in the brand.com, but let, let's say they're all out there doing that. Um, and then obviously, you know, mall type retailers that have multiple brands are closing at an increasing rate. What's the world look like when all these brands are going direct? Is there, is there some new aggregation point or, or, or what does it look like? How do we, how do we discover brands in the next three to five years? Man, I mean, that's, that's a tough question. The, there was, um, Shopify was running an experiment, uh, in, in a location in Manhattan where they were highlighting a handful of Shopify sites within like a mall like environment. And, uh, They were also running other types of in-store experiments like that, where they were saying, okay, well, let's, let's do like an interesting store. Right. Um, I don't know about like that particular approach because to me, it feels like the Amazon four star store. It's like, what what reason do you have to go in there? It's like a bunch of random stuff. Um, You know, (laughs) you can't go in there with a shopping list because you literally don't know what's going to be in there. A gift for your aunt. That's the main, the main mission. Yeah. It's just, it's like, yeah, exactly. Like a gift store. So I, I, I really don't know. I think people are going to experiment because re, I mean, commercial real estate is going to be pretty cheap after this whole COVID thing. And uh, there's going to, there's a lot of retailer closures and mall spaces. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of anchors like JC Penney went bankrupt and a lot of those stores are going to close. And, and so I think there's going to be a lot of uh, um, cheap ways for people to experiment, to try to answer that question. Um, I don't, I don't actually know. I mean, I, I think, increasingly in in the world that we're in we're going to see more fragmentation of ideas and interests um we're going to see a lot more um kind of niched down interests of of smaller sets of consumers um paying attention to smaller sets of things there's less of a mass market and more of this whole set of small markets of interest and each of those small markets of interest have have ways of perpetuating like new product discovery across the individuals that are within the subgroup. And so it's possible that the way that discovery happens in, in my view in the future is, isn't 
um, like the mall in-store browsing experiences of the past, but rather small sets of people that have a shared interest, like, uh, you know, whether it's the, the adult fans of Lego or um, whether it's fans of the Premier League and, and um, you know, of soccer in, in, in Europe and whatever it is, it's these small groups of folks that have distinct places that they go and congregate where they're going to share ideas of new things. And I, there's, there's, there's a piece of me which thinks that people that figure out a way to unlock those types of communities and those types of engagements from a branding perspective are the ones that are going to succeed on a go forward basis. Um, so that's, I know that's not like a great answer to the question. I could, it's a really hard question to answer. Um, but, but it's where my kind of gut inclination is. Yeah. I don't know. I would give it a good answer. I feel like that was uh, very insightful. I, I totally agree on sort of the fragmentation of markets and, um, I, I sort of think a lot of these moments of discovery are also going to therefore get more distributed to a wider variety of different touch points. Right. So, you know, maybe for shoes, it's Instagram, maybe it's a, a, a recipe site for new food products, things like that. You know, I think we're going to see a lot more micro moments um, happening in a much wider variety of touch points, which is, I, I sort of think part of the, the vision you have for your company, right. Is being the engine behind all those micro touch points. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, it's my, I, be, I believe in that type of a thesis and future and it, it makes it hard for a company to execute. Like one, one of the thought experiments I would like to have is um, if you were trying to build Procter & Gamble from scratch today, um, does it look like, a, you know, several dozen brand giant like it is right now? Or does it look like a 2000 brand giant or 3000 brand giant where each of the brands is a little bit smaller and more targeted, you know? Um, and I, I kind of think that there's there's something to that. So, like, if I look at a couple products that I bought and liked recently, uh, they're related to the CrossFit community. There's a there's an up and coming brand called Noble, um, N O B U L L, out of Boston, that sells pretty excellent workout gear, and it's really they target the, the CrossFit community, right? Um, and they've got a lot of loyal followers in that community. Uh, I look at Rogue, you know, the uh, fitness equipment manufacturer. You know they they're killing it in COVID. They're making an absolute ton of money in COVID as a lot of home fitnesses. And the community that they've got is the uh, CrossFit community as well. So these, these are folks that don't have to advertise or don't, they don't have to be in a, in, in, for example, Dick's sporting goods. They don't have to be playing the Amazon game that hard. They've got a built-in brand with a built-in following and a built-in community. And they've been able to do well based on that. Um, so so yeah, I think I think this whole micro moment, small community touch point um, engagement problem, I think is a is a pretty important problem for lots of people to wrap their heads around and, and uh, figure out how their how their company can or should or or won't participate in in that move. Yeah, for sure. Uh, good good call out on Noble, by the way. And just so listeners know, even if you're super unfit, like for example me, um, the, their kicks are still super cool. They're so um, cool. <laughs> uh, I'm a fan too. Uh, I do want to, uh, A, I 100% agree. I think categories like um, apparel, it's playing out the most, right? Like in the old world, Paris Fashion Show, the new trend, skinny jean, everyone in the whole world buys skinny jeans at the same time. I feel like that that model is just gone. There's thousands of micro trends for different communities all at the same time. Yeah, um, and thank God because skinny jeans were, were so... I. Yeah, for me as a CrossFit body, guy, they probably worked day. out better for you than they did for me. But still, <laughs> uh, I do want to pivot because we're we're running out of time. Uh, do you uh, obviously we're we're coming up on holiday? Like depending on how you count, it already started. Do you do you have any uh, opinion or thoughts about what this crazy COVID influenced holiday is going to look like? Man, I I've been trying to think about this. So my in in my family, my mom notoriously shops for Christmas four, five, six months in advance, right? So it's like uh, with my brother and me and our kids, um, we'll get an email from from her in August saying, hey, what's, where's your kid's Christmas list? You know, it's like, it's, it's August. And so th this year we, we got the Christmas list and it made me take a step back and think, huh, this is interesting because 
you know, they live in Florida. We live in Boston. We're not going to see them for Christmas. Like we're not, we're not with, because of COVID we're not traveling. Um, I think that's true for a lot of people. And what does that mean for the gifts that they're going to buy and give them? Normally they, they shower our kids with a bajillion toys and like, what are they going to do? Like ship a bajillion toys to where we're, we're living and have the kids open up a bajillion toys when, you know, they don't get to see the kids open up the toys. And, and so I was trying to play this through in my mind, exactly what, what the impact on our own shopping would be. And, um, I, there's not, there's not, there's not easy decisions on, you know, how do you actually make the grandparents and the, the grandkids have a great connection across the country in this weird time that we're in. And so I, I don't know, man, I think it's going to be an absolutely bizarre holiday season. Um, just like in the early days, I would never have predicted that flour of all things with sour, with the sourdough trend was going to blow up. Uh, I've been making sourdough for years before it was cool, you know, and all of a sudden I couldn't find flour anywhere because it was out of stock. I don't, I don't think anyone could have predicted that all of a sudden everyone is a home baker and doing sourdough, but that's what happened. And so for, for this holiday season, I think it, there's a little bit of trepidation that I've got trying to predict anything. It's just, everyone's going to be trying to figure out how to do a remote Christmas with their families, sending gifts all over the damn place. And, uh, and so, so yeah, maybe, maybe it means smaller gifts. Maybe it means fewer gifts. Maybe it means more of a focus on putting, you know, like checks for your college savings fund. Maybe it means, you know, all, a mix of all of the above. But it, I, the only thing that I feel like is for sure is that the, the, um, the purchasing habits are going to look a little different than they did last year uh, and for, for all the, the travel and get together and constraints that we're talking about. Very cool. Well, we won't hold your feet to the fire on, on uh, holiday stuff. Um, uh, one last one, and this was just I was kind of uh, in researching the show. One of our many research assistants um, pointed out that you guys uh, have at Salsify have won several, not only kind of local local best place to work awards, but some national ones. So, so tell us about that. And uh, you know, as as a fellow founder, that's always one of the things I'm most proud about is, is if you can create a place that's great to come to work, that's, that's kind of part of the fun of being a founder. I'd, I'd love to hear what is it about your culture that has uh, caused all these awards? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, thanks for, thanks for bringing it up. The, I'm very proud of it. Um, just like you said, in terms of one of having great people and having a great culture is one of the great perks of being, um, of coming to work. I mean, one of the things that uh, all three of the founders said in the early days is, if you don't, if you're not building a company that you love going to, what what's the point? You know, life is too short. So first and foremost, if we're going to do anything, let's have this be a place that we just love to work. And for us, just based on our own personalities, the type of jobs that we liked are jobs that were fast paced, that were intense, but where people were supporting each other. You know, there's the, there wasn't backstabbing or anything like that. People understood where you're where you're going, and there's clarity on direction. There's clarity on your role. Um, and where each individual had uh, enough space and autonomy to really do their job without being micromanaged, right? Where people felt like they, they could have impact and control and, and contribution. And so from the earliest days, we focused on this concept. Um, you know, we called it empowerment. It's, I know that's a loaded word, but this idea that people were really, you know, have an ownership mentality of, of the company and their role and position in it, um, and we've tried to to keep that as true as we can all the way all the way through scale. And so, uh, I think I think that's largely what's reflected there. Um, the types of people that are attracted to that type of environment, where you've got a lot of individual accountability and responsibility, and and it's fast paced. You know, absolutely love working working at in this type of place, and they tend to stick around a long time. Uh, we also one thing that we did really well is a while while back we got a chief people officer, um, Colleen, who's just been absolutely outstanding helping us really codify the culture and make it stick as the company scales. You know, when you're, when you're a hundred people or you're 50 people or you're 20 people, um, especially because we have three founders, we can be a lot of places and everybody can know us and we can perpetuate a lot of the ideas that we want. You know, we get to this 400 person plus um, range, especially with COVID and we're remote. We've got a European headquarters and we got an office in Chicago and like people are all over the place. Most most of the people don't know me personally. They don't know Jason personally. They don't know Jeremy personally. And and how do we 
set the culture up to perpetuate. So Colleen has been really effective at working through the process of taking a lot of the early ideas and things that we cared about and uh, keeping them true as we've gotten bigger. Um, so I, I think that that's what I would say is the, the summary of having a strong idea of, of the type of company we wanted to have, what's the core ideal we wanted people to stay true to over time, and then having an operator um, really work with us to make it um, make it scale. It's always weird when you, um, you know, you, you cross this chasm of not knowing like two or three people that you're walking by, but they know you and you're just kind of like, this is really strange. <laughs> yeah. That's when culture, you have to rely on the culture to, to really kind of get there. You can't. You can't do one-on-one when you have 400 folks in the company. I do all these, um, I've done all these like uh, YouTube videos, like whiteboard videos and things like that. And the, the, P, the people team has incorporated a bunch of them in the early trainings. And I, I didn't know that they were doing this. So for me, it, it's like, I got this problem that's compounded where people will come up and say, like, I, I saw all your YouTube videos. And I, I don't know, there's just something that's, um, it's cool, but it's also... It's also like a little awkward for me. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah. Like, poor baby, you rock you stars. Oh. Yeah. Poor baby that you guys are also popular. Uh, <laughs> the, but Rob, hopefully uh, like 12 years from now, a bunch of those uh, more junior employees will be on podcasts talking about the Salsify Mafia and all the successful companies that spun out of, out of you guys, just like we, we started out with Indeca. Absolutely uh, nothing would make me happier. And that is going to be a great place to leave it because we have uh, slightly exceeded our allotted time, but really enjoyed the conversation, Rob. As always, if folks have questions or comments, uh, we encourage you to hit us up on on Twitter or leave us a question on our Facebook page and we'll continue the dialogue. If you got something out of this show, I hope you'll jump on iTunes and finally give us that five-star review. Thanks, Rob. If uh, folks want to find you online, um, what's the best place uh, to, to get to you? Or, or do you, are you a tweeter or a LinkedIn person or both? Or I and these days I'm more of a LinkedIn person. Um, so if you search for Rob Gonzalez on LinkedIn, I'm the the bald guy. Um, I also would encourage people to go to digitalshelfinstitute.org. I, I read on the blog there quite a bit, and we've got a we've got our, our own podcast where if you like my geeking out and nerding on technology, you can get you can get more more of that there. There's some very sketchy guests that have been on that podcast. I will say. Yeah, totally sketchy guess. Speaking for myself. Uh, Awesome, Rob. Uh, Thanks again. And until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 